Alright, now having prayed, we will look back into the book of Isaiah. No new handouts right now, but we do have a couple of old ones up here if anybody needs one. Last week we got through Isaiah 40. Forty-three, Isaiah forty-three, thirteen is what we got through last week. So this week we'll be picking up there on verse fourteen, going through the end of the chapter, and then if time permits, we'll get into the next chapter, chapter forty-four. Now, just a brief recap: Isaiah is the prophet to Israel, and Israel is at this time in captivity. We don't know exactly how long they've been there, but they are people that seem to have no hope and wonder if God cares for them. And even if He does care for them, whether He is able to bring them back to the land or not. And God, and God through Isaiah, gives them several prophecies to give them hope and to assure them that He loves them. He is not only able to bring them back to the land, but He wants to. He is willing and able. And so we will begin by having someone read verses 14 through 21. Today we will start over here with our pastor and read 14 through 21 of Isaiah 43. The New King James Version. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. The Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert, to drink, to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Okay, in this passage, God tells them, in your notes, God tells them He is going to bring down Babylon by sending the Medo-Persians against them. And we read in other portions of Scripture how that happened. Some of that is in Isaiah. And some of it is in the book of Daniel. But Babylon was a great empire And then in one night they fell. The Medo-Persians came against them. Cyrus and Darius would conquer Babylon and set the people free. So we see in verse 14 there that was just read, For your sake I have sent to Babylon. I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans. So God will at some time, he doesn't say when, but he is going to bring down the nation of Babylon. 
And we, you know, notes it is at the sovereign will of God. Remember, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. It's the sovereign will of God. Nations rise and nations fall. God raises up kings. God brings down kings according to the book of Daniel. Chapter 1, I believe it is. So, this is more comfort for the captives knowing that God is in control that He will raise up a nation against Babylon. And I guess probably at this time nobody thought anybody could conquer Babylon. Babylon was so strong and rich that uh, they would remain forever and that these people would have no hope. But in verse 16 and 17, I'm reading from the American Standard today, thus says the Lord who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. What does that remind us of? The Exodus. The Exodus, right. God says, I have... You know, this is no problem for me. Look what I did to Egypt. And uh, <clears throat> you, and you people didn't have an army. You didn't didn't have a probably a spear among you. And yet, I brought I brought down the most powerful nation known then, and I can bring down Babylon just as easy. Just remember your history. Remember what I've done. I am going to do that again to the great nation of Babylon. So, how great that was, he says not to remember the former things because he's going to do a new thing that is even better. According to verses 18 through 21, do not call to mind the former things, or ponder the things of the past. As great as they were, virtually he's saying you haven't seen nothing yet. There's going to be better things. In fact, he goes on to show that all of creation will be honoring Yahweh because he will send Jesus Christ. Yes? So does this, whenever it says, remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old, is that saying that they shouldn't think of those things and think about God's power, or should they not think of those things and pine for the past? Uh, no, he's saying it's a... Um, you, you relative know. relative thing. You know, there's no need to... In a relative sense, those were great things, but don't even worry about that. I mean, that's nothing compared to what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes. He's not telling them, forget the past. Um, you've got to read it in context. Because he just reminds them of what he's done. But he said, well, that's nothing. You haven't seen anything yet. No, he's definitely not commanding them to forget. Christians should never forget the works of God. You got to compare Scripture with Scripture. It's just that what he's about to do will be so phenomenal that those things will pale, and the old things will pale in comparison. And who's going to be thinking about them when this fantastic thing is happening right now? 
right? Um, he can't be telling them to forget because they're still commanded to. He has not rescinded the Passover, so the Passover is there to remind them of the great redemption they had. Of course, it's the intro to the Ten Commandments too. So I mean, we're not to forget what he did in Egypt. Yeah. But the, the footnote here in the Geneva Bible in verse 19 says that their deliverance out of Babylon should be more famous than that from Egypt. Yeah. Yeah, that's the idea. And then on down the road, Jesus Christ. Okay, Elaine, if you'll look for, up for us, um, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And when you get there, just go ahead and read that for us. I should have given you a little bit of warning. Jeremiah 31, what? 31 through 34. And this is one of the great things that's going to be coming about. Should be a very familiar passage to us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with your, their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All right, this is a well-known passage about the passing away of the Old Covenant and the establishment of the New Covenant. These words are repeated twice in the book of Hebrews. And the Old Covenant was great, but the days are coming when I will make a covenant that is much better than the covenant I made with your fathers. They broke them. They broke that covenant even though I was a husband to them. But the covenant which I'm going to make with them is a new one. I will write my law on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And there will be virtually universal knowledge of me. I mean, Israel pretty much kept to themselves. They were a miserable failure in being priests to God. But he says this new covenant is going to be so much better that people will not have to teach their neighbor anymore because all will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So, in a way, forget about those things. Greater things are coming in the new covenant. And of course, Jesus Christ seals the new covenant in His blood. So much greater things that you can't even imagine, so to speak. And Derek Thomas, in his commentary, 
on uh, Isaiah, God delivers. He has this to say, what God is about to accomplish is on a different level from what He had done in the past when He saved Israel from Egypt. It's on a different level. The salvation which His servant Jesus will perform at Calvary is something which the Old Testament has been preparing for. But Israel had missed the point again and again. They are to think along very different lines. God is going to establish a new covenant. Jeremiah passage that we just read. He uses to back that up. God is going to establish a new covenant. The covenant had been breached. God's people had broken it and abandoned His promise. God brought about exile as a punishment. But He would restore them again and make everything new. The coming of Jesus Christ as a little baby in Bethlehem was in one sense something entirely new. No one else had been born quite like this before. The old ways, centered as they were around Palestine and the temple and the sacrifices, were going to be set aside. So, everything is going to be different. Things are going to be better. You have much more wonderful days ahead. Alright, here in your notes, God formed Israel to bring them glory. And His purpose will not fail. Okay. Um, he will send Jesus Christ. He will do a new thing and He will send Jesus Christ. The last two phrases in verse 23. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and in Israel shows forth His glory. God has formed Israel for His glory and His purpose will not fail. That's verse 21. Excuse me. He says, I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, and you will not be forgotten by me. The very last one. God informed Israel to bring him glory. His purpose will not fail. They hadn't bought him much glory so far. All right, any further comments, insights on those um, verses? Okay, now let's see. Now we have a new handout. Verses 22 through 28. If I can get somebody to hand this out. I guess I should have handed this out at the beginning. Yeah. And then we'll have another if we get to chapter 44. Michelle, I was supposed to ask you to read that last verse. I just got on the wrong road. I mean, 
you know, cut me some slack. Okay. All right. Uh, Michelle, verses 24 through 28. 22 through 28 for us. For you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you offered, honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. For you have burdened me with your sins, and you have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your cause, that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. Okay. <clears throat> I got mixed up on the verses and the last one because two of my pages stuck together. So don't be confused by that. Okay. These verses, 22 through 28, 20, 21, excuse me. These pages are stuck together. Verses 22 through 28. God charges His people with neglecting Him. I think it was Derek Thomas that said they were kind of yawning at Him. So what? <coughs> Alright, so they were neglecting Him. That's what God was accusing them of. They have not called upon Him in verse 22. It says, You have not called on me, O Jacob. But you have become weary of me, O Israel. They have neglected prayer. And also they are neglecting worship of Him. You've not brought me my sacrifices. That's what He's telling them. You're not even bothering to worship me. You're not bothering to pray to me. You are weary to me. And then in verse 24, we read that they are neglecting His law and living as they please. Because they're sinning. They're neglecting His law. And He says, rather, you have hardened, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. So, no regard for His law, no regard for worshiping God. So, they have burdened and wearied Him with their sin and iniquity instead of being pleasing to Him. Sin, sins and iniquity. We all know what sins are, right? We have a catechism question. Any one of conformity or lack unto uh, any one of conformity or transgression of the law of God. 
So what's the difference in sins and iniquities? I'll look that up because I was sure somebody was going to ask me that today. <laughs> sins and iniquities. Were they taught as synonyms and thesaurus? They're almost synonyms. Iniquities is, well, let me just tell you what the New Bible Dictionary says. Iniquities is willful wrongdoing. Willful wrongdoing. And our catechism question says that sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So sin would be both. Yeah. Both of those. Sorry. Iniquity, I think, would be kind of a, a subset. Subset, yeah. Bill, this is an example of what uh, we're taught in seminary as Hebrew parallelism. You yeah. see it in Psalms and other places where they say one one passage reads something and the next verse says essentially the same thing but it's slightly different word. Right. Okay. So sins, iniquities, you know, victory, triumph. Your definition has the word willful in it for iniquity, whereas there are many sins we commit. We're not even aware because of our inherent sinfulness that right. we're sinning because we didn't do something we should have done. Right. Or we did something with a bad attitude or something like that. Yeah. So you think they're maybe making a difference there where there's not a difference, really? Um, probably. Because they're saying it's willful. Yeah. yeah. Because this is, this is a way virtually Hebrew uses poetry. Yeah. You know, it is, like a, uh, Charles says, it's parallelism. Right. They don't rhyme. We rhyme. They use synonyms. More or less. But I knew somebody was going to ask me that question, so I was ready. And we didn't, so you asked it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to waste that time. <laughs> you got to look it up. Yeah. All right, in verse 25, we read, Yes, I, even I, and the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That is a wonderful, wonderful blessing. I mean, look how bad these people have been. Look how bad we are. However, in your notes, God is merciful and will forgive them their sins. When He restores them, it's not because they're good, right? He restores them because of His mercy and grace and for the honor of His name. Ezekiel chapter 36 shows the same thing. So we need to realize and praise God that He does not remember us according to our sins. But He forgives us our sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103. So far as He removed our transgressions from us. And you can have no real blessings until you're forgiven. You will not have peace with God. Your sins have to be taken care of before you can have peace with God. And your sins are taken care of not because you're good, but because of God's mercy and grace.
Okay, and then finally in verses 26 through 28, show that though they will be restored, it does not mean that he will. It does not mean that he will still bring judgments on them. Even if he restores them, he can bring judgments on them, and he does that to us in a way. If we start going astray, he'll afflict us. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, "Before I was afflicted, I went astray." Now I keep your word. So he will still discipline and punish them, even though he is going to restore them. So God reassures them here in these verses that he still loves them. He's going to do even greater things for them. Uh, He's going to remember their sins no more even as much as he's bur- they've burdened him and as much as they've wearied him, he is going to wipe out those transgressions. And he's going to restore them even though they will not be immune from affliction. Okay, anybody have anything else to add to chapter 43? Uh, what about the last two verses? Did you do that? Did I just mess it? Oh, yeah, I didn't cover that. It says, Your first forefathers sinned, and I have, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. Even from your very first parent, Adam, he sinned, and he has passed down the guilt all the way, plus all actual transgressions that proceed from it. From the very beginning, from the very first relative of yours, you have sinned. And he says, I'll pollute the princes of your sanctuary. And uh, is what's going to happen is he will bring shame upon them. We see that in Malachi that played out a lot. How if they ignore him and do him wrong and don't worship in the prescribed manner and bring Him glory, He is going to bring them shame before the people. Anything, anybody have anything else to add to what I've said? So the princes of the sanctuary are the priest? Yeah. And the spokesmen are priests. That would be prophets from the priests. Right. Prophets and priests. And the margin it says, or interpreters, which could be the scribes. In other words, all those that are in authority that are not doing what they're supposed to do will lose all honor before the people. Just like it's promised in Malachi. All right, let's see. I really do not want to get into chapter 44 because right off the bat in the first verse we're going to hit something that I want to spend some time on. So, 
I am going to call it here and see if anybody has any questions or anything on this. Anything they want to bring up? I don't know if it sheds any more light on that, but that uh, sins versus iniquities, I checked a few other translations. They had sins versus crimes and sins versus wrongdoings. Okay. So crimes or wrongdoings is how some of the other translations handle the word translated iniquities. Okay. I remember when I was preparing this to teach on Psalm 119, they have sins, iniquities, transgressions, everything else you can think of. And I think it was Derek Kidner said they all basically mean the same thing. There's a little bit of variance, but basically the same thing. Okay. Um, Kim, I'll ask you to close us in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we are reminded of 